Well, in God's providence, on Palm Sunday, we get to come to this text. And just briefly, we want to remind you, where are we at in Matthew? Uh, Matthew was written to uh, tell a Jewish Christian audience that Jesus is indeed the true king, and also to discuss the nature of his kingdom. Uh, why, if it, Jesus was the king, why hasn't it come uh, post-resurrection? And uh, to talk about, Matthew uh, wants to talk to his audience about how do you live in view uh, that Jesus is king. And the structure of Matthew, as you know, is an alternate between narrative and teaching. Narrative and teaching. So Jesus teaches in these five main teaching sections in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, um, others as well. And then we get some narrative. And we are in a narrative section right now in chapters 19 through 20. We've seen Jesus progress towards Jerusalem. Actually, he's been working his way towards Jerusalem since chapter 16. For what purpose? For the purpose, as he's told his disciples, to suffer, to die, to rise again, ultimately to fulfill what Matthew 121 talks about. You should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And last week we saw the blind men uh, right on, at the base of Jericho. Remember, Jericho is, uh, uh, is uh, about a dozen or maybe 14 miles away from Jerusalem, and yet it's a 3,500-foot climb, roughly, from Jer- Jericho up onto Jerusalem. Hopefully, I sent out an email this last week that kind of gave a, a fly-by overview of that route, just give you a little context geographically of what is going on. And at Jericho, we had those two blind men acclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God, that messianic title, uh, the Son of David, that messianic title that shows that Jesus is from the line of David, but not just from the line of David, the king who will rule over all, all of Israel and the whole world. The blind men saw this reality. The crowds yet hadn't. And on the heels of that, after Jesus heals these blind men, he makes that climb into Jerusalem, and now we pick up where we are this morning, he's right about to enter. He's a mile or two away. And what you have to see is how this is structured, how uh, this episode is structured, uh, and how it fits into the rest of Matthew is very profound. So what we're gonna, when we enter chapter 21, we're actually entering a new section in Matthew. It's still narrative, but we're entering a section which is framed by Psalm 118, an Old Testament text. You will notice in our text this morning that in, um, in verse 9, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David and, then, David, and then you see this phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118. And then you will see that exact same phrase again at the end of Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, 39, as Jesus is condemning the religious leaders in Jerusalem, He says, you're not going to see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we know that section is is a bookend with chapter 23, and what we will see in coming sections of Matthew is how Psalm 118 frames really this whole new section. And we'll talk more about that as we go this morning. And the big question is, as Jesus is a mile or two from Jerusalem, the question is, and this is what Jesus has been aiming towards. He's, he's, he's been aiming at Jerusalem. This is the end of the, uh, his mission. The question is, how will Jesus make his entrance? We can think of princes or generals or kings from history 
who the way they enter a town or a territory or conquer, uh, the way they make an entrance displays how they want to be known, how they want to be received. And it's no less true of Jesus' entrance. How he makes his entrance to Jerusalem communicates how he wants to be received. And so really the big question that Matthew would ask his audience and that we can ask the same question for us this morning is this. How will you receive Jesus of Nazareth? How will you receive Jesus of Nazareth? We all have to deal with Jesus of Nazareth, one way or the other. He uh, he existed, he lived, he breathed, and uh, one way or the other, we have a reception for him. Uh, We might receive him as the ultimate Messiah, as the ultimate king. We might receive him as a good man or a good teacher, but one way or the other, you will receive Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a question of will you receive Jesus of Nazareth, it's the question of how will you receive Jesus of Nazareth? And so as we go through the text this morning and walk through it, we can structure it by two questions. First, who does Jesus think that he is in verse 1 through 7? Who does Jesus think that he is? And then secondly, who do the crowds think Jesus is? Who does Jesus think that he is and who do the crowds think that he is? Let's go ahead and look at the text. Matthew 21, 1. Who does Jesus think that he is? Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. Now, what is Bethphage? Uh, Bethphage is this village that's on the top of the Mount of Olives. So if you remember, if you watched that little video clip I sent out this week, you come up, you made this long ascent into Jerusalem, you get to the Mount of Olives. You may not be able to see Jerusalem quite yet, But right on the Mount of Olives, there's some villages. Uh, One of them was Bethany, uh, and evidently there's this place, Bethphage, nearby. So they get to Bethphage, again, about a mile or two away from entering the city. They are entering the city from the east. Jesus is moving from east to west. He is going to round, go over the hill of the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and enter the eastern gate into Jerusalem, right in near where the temple is. The Mount of Olives overlooked the temple. So this is where Jesus is. And, uh, you know, uh, you could make this whole trek from Jericho to Jerusalem in one day. If You know, everyone's walking, everyone's in good shape, pretty much. So you can make this journey in one day, and you can do it all by foot. Now, he's made this 3,500-foot climb all on foot, and then all of a sudden, a mile or two from Jerusalem, which he could easily transverse, he stops. He stops. And then he gives some instructions, calls two disciples over, two unnamed disciples. We don't know who they are. He calls two disciples over, and he gives them some instructions. Verse 2, so then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. So uh, they're in Bethphage. Maybe the other village is Bethany or something like that, but some other village on the top of the Mount of Olives. Go into the village that's in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. We've got mama donkey and uh, son donkey. Okay, that's the picture here. So you're going to find them tied. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, Jesus has made this entire trek on foot. Uh, He could make the remaining distance up on foot. 
But he stops and he asks to go get a couple donkeys, uh, evidently to finish up this trek. Why? We're going to find out. But first he addresses the issue. It's like, wait a minute, um, you go to someone else's place where they have their donkeys tied up, um, and you start untying them without permission, probably you're going to get someone to ask you some questions. If anyone says anything to you, so Jesus is going to address this, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. So what is this saying? Jesus is saying, you're going to come, you're going to start untying it. Maybe someone's going to ask you, what are you doing? It's a natural question. What are you doing untying my donkey? Um, And Jesus says, just say to them, the Lord, meaning God, the Lord of creation who owns everything, including these donkeys, needs them. And so this isn't theft. This is, uh, it's like a a police officer coming and uh, pulling over a citizen saying, I need your car um, uh, and commandeering it because it has that right. The Lord of creation, the master who has created everything and owns everything, needs these donkeys. And Jesus says immediately uh, he will send them at once. He will send them at once. We're not sure if this was prearranged. Maybe Jesus knows this person. Maybe it's kind of a code phrase that he says ahead of time. Or if it's just in God's providence, they just say this and they send the donkey. But again, the question remains, why? Why Why is Jesus doing this? He can make the rest of the way on foot. Why does he need two donkeys? And it is a two donkeys. It's a mama donkey and a sun donkey, a colt, a foal. Uh, and why does he need them? Well, Jesus explains. Uh, you may notice in your text that uh, there's the end of a quote where Jesus is giving the end of his instructions in verse 3. I actually think that quote goes all the way through verse 5. And I'll have uh, all the, uh, if you want questions about why I think that later, I can show that to you. But I believe Jesus is still speaking in verses 4 and 5. And what he is doing is he ex- is explaining why he is doing this. Why is he doing this? This has taken place in order to fulfill, this has taken place in order to fulfill what was said through the prophet. Now, this is familiar language to us uh, as we've walked through Matthew over the last couple years. Uh, Matthew's done this a lot at the beginning, uh, and this is the language of fulfillment. Uh, What does Matthew mean by fulfillment? Uh, he refers, Matthew or whoever is speaking these, um, th- those words, refers to either a prediction or a pattern that gets actualized. Uh, it gets displayed. Now, it can happen more than once, but uh, that is what the language means. That this is, this is going to, what's going to happen is going to correspond to either some prediction or pattern, specifically in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, this is, this is what was spoken through the prophet. He cites one prophet. Actually, what's going to happen is he's going to cite two, but, but the majority of what he cites comes from one prophet, namely the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. Verse 5. What does this prophecy say? It says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a foal, the son of a beast of burden, a foal of a beast of burden. 
This is from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Primarily, it's from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah 9, verse 9. So if you've got a little footnote in your Bible, it probably shows you that this is coming from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Go ahead and turn to Zechariah 9, verse 9. It's not that far away. Just go to your left a little bit in your Bibles. You're going to... First book to the left of Matthew is Malachi, and then to the left of that is Zechariah. Now, we're going to look at Zechariah 9.9, but any time the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, they use it contextually. In other words, they respect the original context in which the prophecies were written. So what do you need to know about what you need to know about Zechariah 9.9? is really the context envisages the Messiah. The, and who's the Messiah? The Messiah is the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate son of David, who's going to reign in Jerusalem over Israel and ultimately over the whole world. And so the context of Zechariah 9.9, it envisages the Messiah coming to reign in Jerusalem in the full establishment of his kingdom, and by extension God's kingdom, with total peace accomplished, after the conquests of God's enemies. That's the picture, is Messiah is going to come, he's going to conquer God's enemies, Israel's enemies, and he is going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to establish perfect peace from Jerusalem, not only over the nation of Israel, but also over the whole world. So let's go ahead and read Zechariah 9.9. And you can already, one of the things we're going to do, and you can watch this as we read it, we're going to compare and contrast what Jesus quotes with what Je- Zechariah 9.9 reads. And you will, say there's, you will see that there are great similarities and there's a couple key differences. So watch for those as we read it. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous in having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A couple things to pay attention to. Uh, one is the words for donkeys. Uh, can't see this in the English text as easily, but the first word that's used for donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey, it's just the generic word for donkey, meaning it could be male or female. Doesn't say, doesn't specify. Could be a male or a female donkey. The second word is the word for the offspring, a male offspring of a donkey, okay? So that's where the colt or the fool comes in. And then that final phrase, the fool of a donkey in Zechariah 9.9, it's the fool of a female donkey. So you got three words, generic term for donkey, a specific word for a male offspring of a female donkey, and then a word for, um, uh, I didn't know this ahead of time, but do you know there's a name for a female donkey? It's called a jenny, the full of a jenny. So you got three words um, for donkey, one a generic term, one a specific term for the offspring of a jenny, and then the jenny um, itself, okay? They're like, well, why does that matter? It will here in a minute, and you will see. Um, uh, But let's even think a little bit more about Zechariah. So Zechariah is painting this picture of the king is coming, the, the, um, the this, this great king, but it's kind of, uh, he's had this victory, he's had victory over Israel's enemies, 
uh, over God's enemies, and he's coming to establish peace as a victorious, conquering king into Jerusalem. Now, you would think, if that was the case, the king's going to come in great pomp and circumstance. He's going to come on a war horse, uh, and he's going to be highly uh, exalted. And it is an exalted scene, but his, his mount is very unusual. A donkey. Um, now, kings, like King David or King Solomon, they rode donkeys. So uh, kings would ride donkeys, but what is being emphasized here in Zechariah is both his victory, uh, his victory, he is vindicated and having salvation, that, that phrase there in Zechariah 9.9, he's, uh, behold, your king is coming to you, uh, he is righteous or vindicated, and having salvation, salvation's been granted to him in the sense that he's, God has granted the Messiah victory over his enemies, but it's juxtaposed with humility, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You're like, why does it have to be a donkey? It just doesn't seem to add up. Well, what Zechariah is doing is he's pulling on another Old Testament text. The authors of Scripture like to do this. They like to tag team. So there's one text over here, and then a later prophet will say, hey, there's this text over here. Let me link to that. And then a later author will link to both of those. And that's what's going on here. And there is one other text in the Bible that talks about a king and a donkey. Go to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Genesis is setting up, after the fall, many, many realities of how is God going to restore things back to Edenic conditions, a restoration to Eden. How is he going to do that after the fall? Well, he's going to do it through a chosen king. And as Genesis goes along, we find out that the king is going to come through Abraham's offspring. Then it's going to come through Jacob's offspring and then Jacob, on his deathbed, gives blessings to his 12 sons. And in the midst of that, we get Genesis 49, 49, 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine. Very similar word to the, the word for colt or foal in Zechariah 9.9. And his donkeys, and there's the jenny right there, and his jenny's colt, to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And what's the point? The point is from Judah is going to come the ruler who's going to ultimately restore things back to Edenic conditions. That's why you've got this imagery of vines and wine and abundance. But what is this king marked with? A donkey. A donkey who's the foal of a jenny which is exactly what Zechariah 9.9 is tying into. He's saying the king, the ultimate king, who's going to rule over not only Israel, but also all the nations, the obedience of the peoples is going to come to him. That's why the king has to come in this way, to show 
that he is that true and rightful king who's going to save Israel and all the world. Now, as we think about how, why is Jesus, uh, he's quoting this, right? He's giving a purpose for why is he entering Jerusalem this way. But you might have noticed, remember I said we're going to do some comparison and contrast. Keep your thumb in Zechariah 9.9 and then flip back to Matthew 21. The question is, how is Jesus using this? So we kind of understand Zechariah's context. We kind of understand how Zechariah is leaning on Genesis 49. Uh, How is Jesus using this? And remember, I said there's some similarities and there's some differences, and those tell us something. Those tell us something. Notice, let's read Jesus' words again. Say to the daughter Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Go back to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There are two key differences between those texts. You might have picked up on them. And the, the, Jesus is intentional about his, what he's citing and what he's not citing. Okay? First difference, Jesus says, say to the daughter of Zion, speak to the daughter of Zion. And what does that mean? It means speak to Jerusalem. Zion is just a name, another name for Jerusalem, or at least a portion of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is talking to Jerusalem. But did you notice in Zechariah 9.9, it says, rejoice, shout greatly, Jerusalem. It's different. In the one case, in Zechariah 9.9, it's celebration. And the way Jesus is quoting it, he's saying, just speak. Speak to daughter Zion. And in fact, he's quoting another prophet. He's quoting Isaiah 62, 11, which does say, say to daughter Zion. And the context of Isaiah 62 is very similar to Zechariah. It's the hope of final restoration for Israel, but also the nations through the ultimate Davidic king who's going to bring about another exodus that's going to gather Israel in and also the nations in as the second David and the second Moses. And so, Jesus is using that Isaiah text together with the Zechariah text, but all that's happening is he's saying, at this point, as I'm marching into Jerusalem, just say this to to Jerusalem. What should Jerusalem be doing? It should be shouting and rejoicing like Zechariah 9.9 talks about. But Jesus is saying, at this point, just declare this. Just say this to Jerusalem. And we're going to find that Jerusalem's response in particular is in question. It's in question very much in chapters 21 and 23. And so Jesus understands this, and he's saying, all right, let's just declare to Zion what Zechariah is saying, that the true king is coming. But there's a second difference, if you will notice, between Jesus quoting Zechariah 9.9 and what Zechariah 9.9 actually says. Both say, behold, your king is coming to you, but do you notice in Zechariah 9.9 it says vindicated and being saved is he, the king. But that is absent in Matthew's use of it, in Jesus' use of it. Why is that? Well, it's because in Zechariah, the idea is the king has been vindicated in his battle, in his defeat of enemies, and he has been saved in the sense that God has given him victory over enemies. Well, the reality is, as Jesus marches into Jerusalem, That hasn't yet happened. Jesus hasn't yet been vindicated. 
He has taken for himself the title of son of David. He is declaring in this text in Matthew 21, I am Jerusalem's rightful king. But what Jerusalem will do is they will crucify him as a messianic pretender. But God will vindicate him. He will vindicate him and he will save him in that sense through the resurrection. It hasn't happened yet and Jesus knows this marching into Jerusalem. This is why he omits it. So what is he doing? Why is he citing this text? Why is he getting these two donkeys? It's all about saying to Jerusalem in particular, I am the rightful king. I am the Messiah. I am the one that Zechariah talks about. I am the one that Genesis 49 talks about. But I'm coming humbly. I am coming as king, but I'm coming humbly and mounted on female donkey and on her colt. Why is Jesus coming humbly? Well, I mean, he is humble. He is lowly. He said that in Matthew. But we understand what has he been saying to his disciples as he's gotten nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. I'm coming to suffer and to die and to rise again. And so Jesus is proclaiming this to Jerusalem as he comes. He's making an entrance. He is unequivocally stating through his actions, I am the Davidic king. I am the one who can restore Israel. And not only restore Israel, but restore peace to the whole world. I am that one. How are you going to respond, Jerusalem? Are you going to shout with joy as you ought to? Or are you going to do something else? Now what happens? Verse 6. So at this point, uh, Jesus has been giving instruction. He's just been giving instruction, and the disciples actually fulfill that instruction in verse 6. That's one of the reasons, I think, that through verse 5, it's all Jesus talking. But what happens? Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey, so the jenny, the female donkey, and the colt, and put on them, plural, their cloaks. So what do they do? The two disciples, remember he sent two disciples? Two disciples bring back two donkeys. And the disciples put garments on both the female donkey and on the colt. And then what? It says he sat on them. Now what does that mean? Some commentators say, well, the them, the second them there that says he sat on them, it's talking about the garments. He sat on the garments, not on two donkeys. He sat on just the garment on the full, on the colt. But that doesn't make any sense because the disciples put garments on both donkeys. Evidently, they believe that Jesus is going to sit on both. And if Jesus is going to sit on the garments, well, he's going to sit on both garments that are on both donkeys. So Jesus is going to sit on two donkeys which is very odd. Like you think about that and it's like, and this is where people, I mean, commentators have uh, a lot of mockery for this. It's like, oh, Jesus is performing a circus act. No. Uh, and people just say, oh, it's impossible for a human to ride on two donkeys, right? And I don't know what image comes in your mind when you're thinking about this, but it's not impossible. Because actually we have evidence even from something like Egyptian tombs where there is a man sitting on two donkeys kind of on a chair straddling both. 
And we don't know if that's what's going on here, if the disciples kind of MacGyvered up some sort of seat for Jesus to sit on. Or maybe he's sitting side saddle on one and draping his feet on the other. Either way, he's sitting on two donkeys, which is very unusual. Why is he doing that? It's odd. Well, yeah, it's odd. That's the point, to draw attention to himself. To say that I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 to the letter, and I am doing it in such a way, I mean, um, that I am drawing all this attention to myself to show and to say to the daughter Zion, to say to Jerusalem, I am the true king. You see this, that Jesus is declaring through his fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that he is the Messiah. All the secrecy is gone. This is as out in the open as you can get. He's going to bring peace to Israel and to the world. He's the rightful king who has rulership over all. Jesus intends to be received as the ultimate king of Israel and the nations. Is that how you receive him? Now, it's not just that he intends to be received as a conquering king. He also intends to be received as the humble king who must suffer and die and rise again for his people. Those who repent and entrust themselves to him as savior and swear allegiance to him as king. Will you receive him in both aspects? You see, what happened with the disciples and with a majority of Jews in the first century, they want to think of the Messiah as a conquering military king and political hero, and he is. The Old Testament affirms that. But then to the exclusion of seeing the suffering Messiah in places like Isaiah 53, who's going to die in place of his people. The disciples don't want that. Israel doesn't want that. And what Jesus wants is to be received as both. Will you receive him as such? Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just a prophet. Uh, he's not just some historical figure that lived. He is without equivocation declaring himself to be the king of the world. He demands your allegiance. He's not asking politely. He is saying, here is who I am. I am the Lord of creation. I am the Lord of Israel. I'm the Lord of every other nation, including every single individual in this room. He is your king, no matter how you respond to him. The question is, are you going to respond in defiance and rebellion, which is all of our natural state, or will you respond in surrender, in repentance and faith and swearing allegiance, understanding I am a sinner. I deserve the wrath of Messiah to fall upon me. I deserve the wrath of the judging victorious king upon me, and yet he offers amnesty. And will you cry? out with those two blind men from last week, have mercy on me, son of David. That is how Jesus wants to be received. That's who Jesus thinks that he is. He's either a lunatic or he's true. And we have seen in the gospel over and over again, he has backed up his claims. He is your rightful king. Will you surrender? Will you turn allegiance from sin and self? Will you turn, um, your, uh, turn from ruling your own life, your own way, 
And will you cry out to him for mercy and entrust himself as the humble king who will save you? You need to be served by the king of the world. Isn't that astounding to think that you are so bad and so sinful? I am so bad and so sinful. My sin is so gross that I need the God of the universe to become man. And that I need that man who's rightfully the king of the whole world to serve me. To save me from my sin and to save you from your sin. If you will surrender and entrust yourself to him and call out to him for mercy and swear allegiance to follow him to the ends of the earth. That's who Jesus thinks that he is. Who do the crowds think that Jesus is? Who do the crowds think that Jesus is? So Jesus is doing all of this. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. How are the crowds going to respond? Now, let's keep in mind for a second who the crowds are up to this point. Okay? So Jesus has done a majority of his ministry in the north, in Galilee, around his hometown of Nazareth and then his home base of Capernaum. That's where he spent a majority of his time. That's where he spent a lot of his years. Um, And the crowds that are following him all this way, they're Galilean crowds predominantly, right? They're crowds that have kind of followed him from the north. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. And... um, We've said all along through Matthew, the crowds are kind of like this character that like they're in between the disciples and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes have active opposition to Jesus. The disciples have uh, placed their faith in Jesus. They're following Jesus. They don't understand everything about uh, what he's doing yet, but um, they are following him. And the crowds are somewhere in the middle. The crowds are somewhere in the middle. They have never confessed They have never confessed Jesus to be the son of David. They've never confessed him to be the Christ. In fact, in Matthew 16, 13, and 14, when Jesus asked his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? Effectively, the answer is, well, they think you're a great prophet. They think maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah, or some other prophet. They think you're a prophet. But notice what these crowds do. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. Now, what does that mean? Why are they doing that, right? So they're taking off their cloaks now, and they're putting them on the ground. Well, there's one other example in the Bible of uh, this happening. If you were to, you don't have to turn there, but in uh, 2 Kings 9, 11 through 13, Jehu, uh, a a king in Israel, gets uh, a prophet comes in and anoints Jehu to be king over Israel. And then Jehu talks to his buddies who are sitting around him and saying, hey, that guy just anointed me king over Israel. And then it, his buddies immediately take off their cloaks and put them under Jehu's feet. Why are they doing that? Because they are recognizing him to be king. And that is what the crowds, the Galilean crowds are doing. They've turned a corner where they have now, based on what Jesus is doing, what they've seen, he just made the signature messianic move last week with healing two blind men. He is the son of David. They've turned a corner. They've never confessed it before, but now they have. They put their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Why is that? Well, uh, during the uh, period where the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament started, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a Jewish uprising against Greek overlords called the Maccabean Revolt. And when one of those rulers from Israel marched into Jerusalem, he marched in, And the crowds cut down branches to signal conquest and victory. 
So here we get a glimpse into what the crowds are thinking. They're thinking, Jesus is coming in as conqueror. Jesus is coming in as hero. He's going to have victory. He's going he's to overthrow the Romans. So they have the right conception of Jesus as far as, yes, he is the rightful king, but they're filling it with a skewed understanding of what that means. They're looking to him to be conqueror. They're looking for him to march in Jerusalem and take over which is his due. And what are the crowds saying? In the crowd, verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Have you ever uh, thought, uh, you know, sometimes we just say things like Hosanna or Hallelujah, and you're just like, what does that actually mean? Like you just say it, but you don't actually know what it means. Hosanna is one of those things. Well, Hosanna and what the crowds are saying connects with Psalm 118. Psalm 118. You can go and turn there if you want. Go to Psalm 118. And just to give you a little context, Psalm 118 celebrates the victory of an individual speaker who defeats his enemies. He defeats the nations and his enemies in the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, and then is joined by others later on in the psalm, in procession to the temple in celebration. In the context of uh, the psalms surrounding Psalm 118, um, we can identify the individual victor as the Messiah who has defeated his enemies for the good of Israel and the nations, and he's, he's rescuing. So very much the same kind of context as in Zechariah, as in Isaiah. Same kind of context here. In fact, Psalm 118 was sung by the Jews in their feasts, especially Passover, which is where Jesus is going. And it, always, it came with a messianic um, uh, expectation. God's going to save his people. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to send the son of David. And we can see where the crowds are getting their ideas from in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Verse 25, this is the crowds speaking in Psalm 118, the procession to the temple. Save us, we pray. That is what Hosanna means. This is where Hosanna comes from. Save, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. Save, we pray. And what's going on in Psalm 118 is the crowd is saying, right, we got the victorious one. We have the Messiah. Uh, and it's kind of a mixture prayer and praise. Save. Save, we pray, O Yahweh. Save by your Messiah, O Yahweh. We get, pray, give us success by the hand of the Messiah. That's in context what this is indicating. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, earlier on in the psalm, that's how the Messiah defeated his enemies. And so now the crowd is uh, in Psalm 118 is saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of the Lord. And so the crowds back in Matthew 21, what are they saying? Save, please, by means of the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save, please, in the highest. They are looking for God's rescue for them as a nation. They're looking for it through the Messiah. They recognize Jesus. This is the first time explicitly the crowds from Galilee, the crowds from the north recognize 
that Jesus is the son of David. Remember, I was preaching last week, and I said, well, uh, the crowds really haven't changed. Remember, we saw them with the two blind men last week, and they're saying to the, the two blind men that say, have mercy on a son of David. They say, be quiet. They don't want to use the title son of David. And I said, well, they don't really change. And we see in verse 11 that they still view Jesus as a prophet. I don't think I was right. It's because... And I'll explain it a little bit more as we go. I think what we see here is the crowds have turned a corner. The crowds from Galilee have turned a corner based on all that they've seen Jesus do. And they are ascribing to him the right title, son of David, the king. Their perception is still skewed. They still think primarily in terms of him being a conquering king, which he will be, and yet they've completely missed, as the disciples have missed, that why is Jesus coming to Jerusalem? What is he coming for? To suffer and die and rise again for the sake of his people. They've turned a corner. The crowds from Galilee have turned a corner. But that's not the only crowd that's present. Look at verse 10. So the camera angle so far has been on Jesus and on the crowds, like all the crowds around Jesus from Galilee, and they're coming down, they're um, crossing the Mount of Olives, coming down the Kidron Valley, they're going to enter Jerusalem. Look at verse 10, the camera angle changes. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, remember Jesus uh, was doing all of this with the donkeys to say to the daughter Zion, to say to Jerusalem, well, how is Jerusalem going to respond? Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Stirred is an under-translation. They were shaken. They were disturbed. It's not like, hey, what's going on? They were like, dude, this guy is proclaiming himself to be the, the, the son of David. Who is this? They're shaken. They're shaken. They're disturbed. Remember back uh, early chapters of Matthew uh, when the Magi come and say, where's he who's born king of the Jews? And it says that Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. They're disturbed. And all of this is about what is, Jerusalem, what is Jerusalem's response? Not the north. What is Jerusalem in Judea's response going to be? They ask themselves, right? They're asking themselves, who is this? Who is this? Verse 11, and the crowds. Now, which crowds? You might think, well, it's the same ones that have been welcoming Jesus in. I don't think that's the case. I think they're different crowds. Why do I think that? Well, notice what they say. The crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, if it was the same crowds as we just saw saying in Hosanna, well, they're calling Jesus the son of David. They've before called him a prophet, but they've turned a corner. The ones from Galilee have turned a corner, and they've said, Jesus, you're the king. You're the son of David. But what are these crowds saying? Well, he's the prophet, Jesus, which is kind of the general common conception of what Jesus has been. But also, we know that the perspective has shifted. The lens of the camera is no longer on uh, Jesus and the crowds around him. The lens is focused on Jerusalem. The Jerusalem asks this question of themselves. Who is this? They're asking each other, who is this? And Jerusalem answers. The crowds, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem answer. This is the prophet Jesus. And then notice else what they say. From Nazareth of Galilee. 
In other words, they're, they're talking of Jesus as if they are non-Galilean residents. Oh yeah, he's the guy from Nazareth in Galilee. He's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. These are Jerusalem crowds. Now, why does that matter? Well, have you ever heard this passage preached before? You probably have multiple times, and you're like, ah, the fickle crowds. They're welcoming Jesus on Sunday, and on Friday they're saying, crucify, crucify him. They're different crowds. The Galilean crowd has turned a corner. The question is, what is, how is Jerusalem going to respond to Jesus? And what we find through Matthew 21 through 23 and beyond is that Jerusalem is going to reject. They're going to reject Jesus as a messianic pretender, and they are going to shout, crucify, crucify him. Different crowds. Effectively, what Matthew is doing here is he's reintroducing Jerusalem as a character. The crowds have been a character in the story, and Jesus has spent a majority of his time in the north, but now Matthew is saying, how is Jerusalem going to respond? That's who Jesus is speaking to now. That's who he's speaking to and riding in on the donkey. How is Jerusalem going to respond? Which sets up the ensuing chapters. How do we apply this? First, beware of skewing Jesus' identity to fit your preconceived notions. That's what the crowds in Galilee are doing. Oh yeah, they're welcome. They say the right things. They have the right, I mean, they are right in a sense. They're, te- uh, they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is king. He's the one that's going to rescue Jerusalem and Judea and Israel and the world. Yes, that is true, and yet it's skewed because they are focusing only on the conquest and the victory, and they're missing the suffering and the atonement that needs to happen, that Jesus needs to do for his people. And we can do the same. We can ascribe to Jesus the title of Messiah and King and Son of David and Son of God and all of these things, but then we can fill that title with our own preconceived notions of who Jesus is. In a sense, they had the right response. They had joy and exuberance over Jesus being the son of David. We could even ask that question. Do you have joy and exuberance that Jesus is the son of David? He's the rightful king who's going to rule over all the world from a throne in Jerusalem. Are you excited about that? Or is it like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's the son of God. He's the son of David and he's the king. Um, What's for dinner? What's on TV? How blasphemous. Because Jesus is the king. I mean, we're not playing around with terms here. You see, we can use those titles and then fill them with our own skewed notions of who Jesus is. You need, how does Jesus want to be received? With bended knee and with joy. With bended knee and with joy. Because he's the king, but also, and this is what the crowds and the disciples still haven't gotten yet, but also because he died in the place of sinners like you and me. If you understand that, you understand that Jesus went to the cross bearing the sins of his people in his flesh, such that any who repent and place their faith in him, their sins are wiped out. They are not guilty. They are counted righteous in God's eyes. That ought to bring you joy. And if it does not, I don't know if you're saved. Because if you understand what is happening, you ought to be shouting, Hosanna, save please by the son of David. Have mercy on me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you could be in the crowds category, 
the Galilean crowd category, but you might be in the Jerusalem crowd category. Are you upset by Jesus? Does he shake you? Does he disturb you? You're like, well, I'll sit here and I'll bear a sermon and I'll hear about Jesus, but I don't really like him because Jesus has demands on me. He has demands on my life. You talk about this language of kingship and allegiance, and I don't like that. I like to rule my own life, thank you very much. Well, you know what happens, and we will see this as we go through Matthew, that Jesus came to Jerusalem and he threatens those who want to maintain the comfort and their position in life. You might be here this morning and like, I can endure hearing about Jesus, but I'm not going to let him take control of my life. Well, Jesus threatened people like that. That's the people that Jesus was targeting when he's flipping over tables in the temple, when he's speaking woe to the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter 23. Because Jerusalem will ultimately reject Jesus because he's not the king that they want. It is upon such as those that want to maintain their comfort, their own rule over their lives, that will receive woe and judgment from King Jesus when he comes again, not on a donkey, but on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay his enemies, those who have not repented and placed their faith in him. So why will you die? Repent and place your faith in Jesus and bow the knee in joy now, lest you bow the knee in subjugation later. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We long for your return in victory, establishing peace and judging your enemies. And we can only say that as those who belong to you because we know we would experience the same judgment and yet in mercy, in grace, in kindness, in humility, you have served us by dying on the cross for your people's sins, those who have placed their faith in you and you rose again, you were vindicated and you are the true king. And Lord Jesus, we want to follow you to the ends of the earth with joy, even through suffering to shout with joy because we love you and because we know who you are and because we know you have saved us. Lord, if there are any in this room that have not bowed the knee, do business with them. Break their spirit so that they might come to know you. Override their will, O Lord God, and make it yours. Because you need, you've done that to me. You've done that to many of us. Do it to more for the sake of your glory and your name. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.